Welcome to the Creative Giant Show, where we go behind the scenes about what it means to live a life full of creative and professional success. Creative giants are talented, renaissance souls with a compassion-fueled bias towards action. Now, here is your host, Charlie Gilkey. Hello, this is Charlie Gilkey from Productive Flourishing, and this is... I don't know what episode this is of the Creative Giant Show. This is going to be a great episode, though. I'm delighted to have Thursday Bram join me today on um, this episode. Thursday is the co-founder and chief word nerd at Urgency Inc., an online marketing agency focused on technical clients. She's been blogging for over 10 years and has written for GoDaddy, Entrepreneur Magazine, and a variety of other publications. Like all of the guests on the show, Thursday is a true renaissance woman. Her current interests include diversity in tech, the use of punctuation, cryptocurrencies, which I don't even know what that one is, so we might get into that one, analytics impact on content strategy, GIFs like the peanut butter, but also like the movable um, um, images that you see online, and open source business models. In her off time, Thursday is also a co-founder of PDX Shelter, a Portland-based nonprofit startup, and an organizer at PyLadies PDX. What made me think to bring Thursday on the show was a conversation we were having over coffee about the issues women face in the tech industries and other things related to um, tech and business. We'll explore some of those issues on the show as well as to dive into some of her other projects. Thursday, thanks so much for the work you do and for being on the show today. Thank you for having me. All righty. This is going to be a fun one because, well, I never know where these are going to go, but I really don't know where this one is going to go today. So um, let's get in there. So, so our listeners have some context of who you are. Give us a quick background of how you got to here. How do you go from being a, being a Coloradan, is Coloradoan? You'll, t- you'll correct me on that, with a bachelor's in communication to a startup founder and prolific writer about tech, content, and business? Well, so I grew up in Colorado, and I grew up in a family that is almost entirely entrepreneurs. Uh, getting a day job was sort of it's acceptable, but it's not ideal in my family tree. Uh, my granddad started his first business uh, after he got to the U.S. Um, and from then on, we just all were entrepreneurs. So in high school, I started freelance writing. Um, I wound up at University of Tulsa in Oklahoma for college. And I kept writing there. I kept taking all sorts of classes. Um, I actually ran out of classes to take in my major, so I just kept taking all sorts of other classes. Uh, Art, computer science, whatever they would basically let me into. Um, And then I just kept writing, and I kept trying new things, and I kept doing things. I graduated with my degree. Um, I got one of those day jobs. I lasted almost a week and a half, and then I quit uh, because the job sucked and it wasn't interesting and I was already making money doing freelance work so I couldn't really see the the value in it. Um, By that point I was out in Maryland and I did a master's degree out there and just kept writing and kept specializing more and more in tech and online writing. Um, And then a couple of years ago my husband took a position with a startup out here in Portland so we moved to Portland and we like Portland a lot better than the East Coast, so we're, we're pretty well settled here. And then a partner of mine who I'd worked on with some projects, uh, she does videography and animation. We started talking about how we could work together because we both do online content, but we do very different types of online content. And that's where Urgency was born. 
So we launched at the beginning of this year, and that's been my big project lately. Cool. All right, so this sounds funny because we, we never feel this way, but you're kind of a dinosaur at this point because you've been blogging and writing since before blogging was like a thing, right? Um, it, it's been a while, so not necessarily diverting into the issues related to women. We'll get there in a second, but give us some major trends that you've seen um, that have happened since you started writing online into where we are today. Sure. So one of the trends that I've noticed is now it feels like it's very hard to get started writing. There's almost this this friction between the idea of, oh, the web has democratized writing. Anybody can build an audience. And then when you actually start looking into it, you see people who have been doing it for 10 years and have millions of readers. And you're like, oh, I couldn't possibly do that. But in reality, it still is very democratic. It's as simple as starting up a blog and putting some words into it. And then all of a sudden you're blogging. It's it's a lot easier than it seems on the surface, I guess. Yeah. So is blogging dead? Absolutely not. Uh, so the comparison that I love is um, in the 1920s, a lot of people went around saying that newspaper journalism was dead, that it was over, that it was done for. Uh, all of like the, the very exciting investigative journalism that happened around the turn of the century. Oh, we can't possibly do that anymore. It's too expensive. It's too time consuming. Uh, newspaper journalism is dead. And anyhow, nobody reads anymore. Um, and every time I hear somebody say blogging is dead, I just get that echo back to the, the newspaper journalism. It's not dead. It's quite alive. As long as people are putting words to paper or to computer, people are going to continue reading. It's just kind of a question of what new people are bringing to the equation. Yeah, I bring that up because it's it reminds me of a conversation we had with Todd Satterston, I think on episode 13 or so, um, where it was part of like, is traditional book publishing dead too, right? So we hear these sort of weird things as, as people who create content online. Email marketing is dead. Social media is dead. Blogging is dead. And aside from the headline, it's mostly just nonsense, right? Um, but I'm not in the business of actually like, you know, helping people. I don't have urgency ink as it were. Um, but I'm sure you get that question if you don't get that question a lot, there's a, there are at least echoes, you know, that come up as you talk to people about that. Um, mm -hmm. What, as I mentioned earlier, what got me thinking about this is we were having coffee here locally and we were talking about, I think it was a piece that you wrote about women in tech or something like that. And we were both kind of like, seriously, we still need to talk about this. This is 2015. Like there's still issues, which is quite reminiscent of some of the issues that we're facing with Ferguson and things like that. Like seriously, this conversation is still needed. <laughs> Um, but that just shows our age and just, just where we're involved. But, um, you know, I, what, as I was thinking about the show, I was thinking about old controversies, like say Kathy Sierra and some of those things that happened back in, you probably know the time frame, but 2006, 2007 timeframe was when all of that blew up. And now we've got things up to Gamergate and all those types of things. So let's talk about some of the issues that women face in, the tech industry at large, just so that we can at least illuminate it for people who like us, who may have been innocent, like seriously, we need to think about this. Well, I might be more innocent about it than you are because you deal with it a lot more. Um, so what are some of the issues that are, that women in tech really face? Well, the interesting thing about tech is that there's not a lot of overt problems. I mean, there are, but not when you compare to some of the other industries that people could be working in. 
So a lot of companies that are tech companies want to be seen as very progressive and very modern. And we couldn't possibly have sexism or racism or any other sort of bigotry involved in our company. But the reality is that because most of these companies are founded by white men who are usually straight, who are usually from middle class to upper class background, they don't even think about any experience outside of their own. So a really good example, I think, I had a friend who was working as a computer programmer. She is incredibly experienced. She's incredibly intelligent. Um, she and her husband were ready to start a family. She was pregnant. And she went in about three months uh, before she even really needed to, to ask. So I'm working at a startup. What's your policy on maternity leave? I mean, it's it's a pretty basic question. She wasn't expecting a lot because it's America and we have horrible maternity leave pro uh, processes. But the guys, because everybody else in the office was a guy, the guys were like, oh my God, I have no idea what we have in terms of the policy. They had bought, uh, basically, there's a couple of HR packages where you buy all of your HR policies as a startup and you implement them. And they don't include maternity leave because they don't feel that they need to. So they're like, we'll get back to you on that one. We'll figure something out. Um, less than a week before she actually went on maternity leave, they came back and said, well, um... We're going to guess that you want like six weeks for maternity leave. If that isn't what you want, maybe come back and negotiate with us because we still really have no idea. And that's that's like typical. It's typical that those sorts of problems pop up because it's just so far out of the worldview of the sorts of people who are running a lot of startups that they don't even consider those sorts of situations, let alone more subtle issues. As someone that provides business services, I would say that if you're providing an HR package that does not include this, you really need to think about what you're selling because what the hell are they buying if it doesn't include these very types of issues, right? Um, and so I'm just going to pause that. I don't know much about the program. Maybe it's an add-on, but again, that should be a basic consideration. What do you do? It's like pay time off. Like it's a basic consideration once you start having employees that you got to figure out. So that that's an interesting sort of thing that happens there. And I imagine other issues that come up um, largely based on the fact that even though they are in tech in our society, women are still the kin keepers. And so as kids get sick, as family gets sick, as all these types of things go on, they're still much more um, responsible, again, sociologically speaking, than men are to make sure those things get taken care of. Right. So we see that pop up as well. Oh, absolutely. Even in more established startups, it's very common to see guys come into work the day after their wife gives birth because, oh, they're not the one who was pregnant. They're clearly needing to be at work. But seriously, this is a startup though, right? So, I mean, here's the challenge, right? You've got like six people and, mm -hmm. you know, the mascot parakeet or dog that's, that's actually part of this. You miss a person like that and it's a pretty critical thing. So... Um, so that we're not just pointing out the problem, what are some different policies for people that are in a particular tech company or in a startup in general that you think is least allows them to start thinking through some of these issues? So one of the, the core concepts that I think needs to be a starting point is looking at how these companies hire. 
So you see the the ads, oh, we're looking for a rock star or a ninja or some sort of other title, um, somebody who's been programming since they were 13 in their basement. And right off the bat, they're creating a message that the sort of people that they want are exactly like them, that they don't actually want diversity no matter what lip service they pay to it elsewhere, and that they want people who who fit a very traditional path of programming. And right now we're facing a huge shortage in the number of programmers available to hire in the US. So limiting themselves like that right off the bat is, is hindering their ability to evolve as a, as a company, leaving aside all the various studies that have been done that prove the value of diversity in a company like that. So starting from those hiring practices and thinking about, all right, how are they presenting themselves? What questions are they asking during an interview? How are they making people who are different than them feel welcome in their company culture? And that's that's just a very basic starting point, but it's an invaluable one. From there, it's kind of a question of thinking about, all right, I don't necessarily need maternity leave, but is that something that my coworkers are going to need? Um, what about time off in terms of holidays? I mean, most companies are like, oh, we'll give you Christmas off, but what about the Jewish high holidays? Or what about um, any other faith? Just thinking in a little bit more broadly right off the bat gives a lot of possibilities. Yeah, what I would want to say here, and this is, I won't go into a huge critique of like the tech startup world, but at a certain point, you have to think about the fact that you're running a business and not an extended college party, right? Where you've got a bunch of guys around coding something and it's like, oh yeah, we might need to take Christmas off. Like, no, people work here. They have lives outside of this and they have careers outside of this thing that you're talking about. And maybe that's, you know, what you want to consider when you start a startup is because you're starting a business as well. Like, it's not just about the idea and going to market. It's about how do you put the business engine under there until you do. So just something to think about. I know that's a sort of left jab without a huge without a huge context for um, startup world there. Um, let's talk about the labor pool for women in tech, right? Because sometimes it's brought up that there just aren't enough women in tech, anyways. And so, problem part of what we have is a huge um, huge competitive pressure for employers to hire women at the same time that they're doing the exact things that we're talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, but I haven't read any recent statistics about, you know, the, the number of employable women in the tech related fields versus the particular jobs that are available for them. Mm -hmm. Um, talk to us a little bit about that. So the standard argument is it's a pipeline problem that we don't have enough women coming in through, uh, STEM education, getting CS degrees, all that. But in reality, if you look at most of the colleges in the U.S., we're not we're not on terms of parity yet. It's not 50-50, but the number of women who are getting CS degrees has been increasing dramatically. The problem is more a question of keeping women in tech because over the long haul, especially um, at this point, it's it's a grind. A woman who's involved in tech is constantly facing both overt sexism and more subtle issues, Uh, just all the way through from getting that first job to getting a management position at every step along the way. And after a while, most women are like, this sucks. Why am I bothering to put up with this? 
when I could go do any number of other things where I'm going to have fewer problems. The, just taking um, women founders as, as a group, there's a lot fewer women founders, uh, not just because of the, the fewer number of women in tech overall, but because uh, investors are less likely to work with women founders, especially women who have families. They're less appealing to investors because, oh my God, a woman might take a little time off to make sure that her kid who's sick is taken care of, things like that. Um, women founders face, oh, so there's um, a lot of very interesting stories about women founders getting calls from investors saying, oh, I'd like to talk about your business. Why don't we meet for dinner or why don't we meet for drinks? And then it turns out to be this investor asked them on a date not to talk about their, their business, but as a date. And no, no investor would do that to a male founder, but it's very typical uh, experience for a female founder. I know any number of female founders who wear fake wedding rings, whether or not they're, they're married, but they'll get something very big and splashy just to make sure that investors are like, oh, she's married, she's taken, she's off limits. I guess I'll behave myself this time. And that's insane that we're dealing with that sort of situation in, in 2015 that you have to basically lie about your marital status to be taken seriously as a company founder. It's, it's very frustrating and it just, it makes, it makes it so much less obvious that a woman would even want to do the, any of this sort of work. There's no good argument for slogging your way through that sort of struggle. Yeah, in a lot of ways, and I've written I think I've written about this. I've at least talked about it in the past. Bootstrapped entre bootstrapper entrepreneurship is actually much more appealing, appealing option for women than it is for men in a lot of different ways, right? Because in some ways in that situation, you get to bypass both issues and what we're talking about, the sort of patriarchal business environment that continues to either exclude you from hiring or at least, you know, make it awkward for you to be hired and then not hire you versus, and as well, the investors who won't invest in your business because of the issues that we're talking about. It's like, you can go the bootstrap route and as long as you make the business work, like you can create the environment that you actually want to live both for live in both for you and for people. Of course, it's hard work, right? So that's the downside is that, um, yeah, you, you're, you've got to build it. So um, whenever we talk about issues like this, it reminds me of issues of racism, things like that. I, I think people who aren't in the world really think like, how big of a problem is this? Is this just outlying sort of situations like the, the, the investor asking the founder woman out, like that's that one in 1,000 or one in 10,000 scenario where the rest are actually legit and we're just making a big stink about, you know, these outlying cases. Like how prevalent is this? Every woman I know in tech has at least one story. Um, some of them may not notice at first that something is going on. Like I do know like several women who are younger who are like, oh, I've never had a problem. And then you start talking to them and they're like, oh, I guess maybe that was inappropriate behavior when somebody asked to interview me for a job at a bar and then asked if, if he could walk me home or things like that. And I mean, every woman I know in tech has that story. And there's some industries that are a lot better, but honestly, when it comes down to it, tech is still better than a lot of other industries. Like I know 
like I know a lot of women who have had waitressing jobs and that's so much worse, so much worse to be a waitress than, than to work in tech. So yeah, tech sucks, <laughs> but it could be worse. It could be worse. Um, and it could also be a lot better, right? That That's the flip side of the story here. And so we're talking about tech largely because that's, that's Thursday's pool that she swims in. And I, I swim in the pool enough to see the issues as well, but as well, like, um, if you want to talk about like some sexist industries really going to construction or anything like that, and you'll see a lot worse than what you'll see in, in this. I think part of the problem is the expectation that we have for these companies, because on the face of it, you know, they're green and they're sustainable and they're pro-diversity and they're all these sort of things like that. And so it's, it's a bit more of a betrayal in that sense. And it's like, wait a second, this is what was promised and this is what was not delivered. Then like for those environments in which we would expect her to be lingering, um, lingering issues of sex and race, which, you know, we, we're not talking about those today, but you're right. It's relative. And part of why it stings so bad, I think, is because of the stated progressivism of the companies that sometimes doesn't follow through in that way. Absolutely. And I think there's also the, the fact that, if you're dealing with tech companies, you're dealing with people who understand how to use the web and how to blog and how to have a discussion outside of work um, in a very public way that doesn't happen in other industries. So it highlights these issues even more. All righty. So let's flip for a second to we've, we've been talking about industry trends. We've been talking about company trends. What can we as consumers do to really bring light to these issues or at least place some pressures on, on the different companies that we buy from and or support. Being aware of these issues is the first step. Like so many people, I mean, we're, we're in this bubble almost where we pay attention to what's going around, going on around us, where we care about these particular issues. But a lot of people, is it cheap? Is it easy for me to get? Is it convenient? Those are the questions that they ask before what's the overall impact of this purchase that I'm making. And ultimately, we have to be aware of the, the hidden costs of the things that we do um, if we ever really want to affect change in the long term. Because dollars speak. In our, in our culture, dollars absolutely speak. So making choices on that basis is, is a very important first step. Um, I mean, there's, there's so many different things that people could be doing. There's political activism that is still very relevant. I mean, oh, you may have gotten that, that amendment that lets us vote, but basic things like uh, equ equitable pay or uh, health care, things like that can have a huge impact too. But ultimately, it's kind of a question of picking one thing that you care about and going after it. If you care about your workplace being in a uh, diverse place, ask for, for that diversity. Go to who you're working with and say, so there's an expert who I know that I want to bring in as a consultant, or I want to hire this woman as opposed to this man, or I want to hire this person who has a life experience that's different from everybody else. And then I'm going to make the, the effort to bring them into the conversation. It's those sorts of steps that, that really make the difference in your personal life. Yeah, I think that. And as well, remember that with tech companies, um, 
we tend sometimes, especially when we start talking about social media, Twitter, Facebook, the rest, we tend to be passive consumers without realizing that we can actually exert some force on companies because that's where the public conversation is being had. And so if you can both see something that's not cool, that's a venue. Like I wouldn't say start on Twitter, social media or anything like that. That's I would not recommend that. I, you know, talk to the people first because sometimes it's this might get me in trouble Thursday, but oh, well, that happens. <laughs> I think. There are a lot of unintentional instances of sexism, racism, and things like that, right? Where the people just don't know, right? That it's not cool or they're not really checking the context. There, there are creeps and there are assholes out there, right? I'm not trying to say that creeps and assholes don't exist, but I'm trying to say this middle majority of people is probably much more in line of unintentional stuff. Like the story you gave earlier where the startup didn't know about maternity leave. It's not that they were like intentionally being jerks. It's just that, they didn't know. They hadn't thought about it. They hadn't thought about long-term consequences. And so I would say on that one, like don't start a flame war on Twitter or don't start a flame war on Google Plus or wherever when something not cool happens. Now, caveat, there are unintentional not cool things and then there are like really egregious things. And so on the really egregious, maybe go ahead and call that out on Twitter because people need to know, especially if someone's safety or self-respect is really, you know, um, damaged in a way. Um, but for the unintentional stuff, like remember that there are people, everybody who makes something that you buy, like there are people under there, talk to the people first, then maybe go to the crowd. Cause they might actually fix the situation better in that private situation, like in that private communication than if it starts this whole flame war on, on things. So, um, and I say this because I've been on both ends of it with clients who, uh, not that they did anything really, you know, thing, but like they got this email, like, what do we do about that? So here's how you handle that. And here's how we fix it. Mm -hmm. And on the other side of them getting caught up in a flame war and um, it not going well. So remember, people address the problem. If the problem is not fixed in the personal communication, you have this great tool called social media. Um, use it. Um, I know that was a long rant there, guys, but um, <laughs> we that's the thing, right? So we're talking about tech and content, so we can jump all over the place, right? Um, that, that's my, that's mm -hmm. my excuse to wander today. Um, there are such hot button issues, and that's the thing that we have to worry about in the social media realm is that there's so much unvalidated um, things that are being written that you can really um, either damage or be damaged by social media um, to a degree that, like, because people don't follow up with facts, um, it just catches on like wildfire. So that's why I was a little bit more cautious about that. But Well, um, social media can be a very scary place. I don't know if you've been following any of the gamer gator issues or anything like that. But I have several friends who routinely get all sorts of threats on social media because they continue to have a presence there um, just for basically the crime of being female. Let's talk about Gamergate. We referenced it twice and, you know, this might be an insider thing. What's going on with Gamergate? So <laughs> um, Gamergate started as... A, a posting by a guy who was very upset with his ex-girlfriend who um, was a game developer. Uh, and he accused her of sleeping with game journalists in order to get better reviews, uh, which was in fact not the case. It was just somebody being very upset that his relationship was over and handling it in the worst possible way. And it turned into attacks on several women who were talking about gaming, who were very visible. 
So um, Anita Sarkeesian is one of the, the women who is still facing just horrendous attacks on an ongoing basis. Um, she does a set of YouTube videos uh, that are uh, game criticism. And by game criticism, I'm talking about academic criticism. I'm not talking about, oh, I don't like this game because of that. I don't like that game because of this. I'm talking about using uh, the various academic uh, tools to deconstruct what's actually going on in video games and take a very deep look at the role that they're playing in society and how they're impacting society. Um, and she has talked negatively about uh, several of the, the ongoing tropes in video games because they are honestly quite demeaning to women. They're quite harmful the way that they show women. Um, they do show horrible things. Uh, and she routinely gets death threats. Um, she's had to cancel speaking occasions because people have promised to show up and shoot her at them. Um, I was at one of the, the talks she gave here in Portland. There were protesters outside. Um, a guy had to be arrested because he was screaming throughout her talk. All sorts of just very negative things. And she's not she's not a horrible person in any way. She in no way deserves any of this. The only thing that she does is use academic criticism to take a look at media. That's it. That's the only thing that she's doing, and she's being attacked for it. And gamer gators um, routinely claim that their movement is about ethics in game journalism. Um, they're not attacking any male games journalists. They're attacking Anita Sarkeesian. They're attacking a few women who write about games. And then they're attacking a few women who actually make video games. Um, and in, in no way is this about ethics in video game journalism. It's about people who don't want their video games to change in any way, which is not what these women are arguing for. These women are arguing for a more inclusive game industry in general, but they're not saying, oh, let's get rid of all these games that we don't personally enjoy playing. They're saying, let's just make more games overall. So it's it's very scary and very frustrating to deal with. Let's put this in context, right? Because we're talking about video games. Okay, what's the big deal? And we can go back to video games and then before video games, comics, and there are these sort of popular media that get consumed by kids, but now that, you know, the average, what is the median age of gamers is now something like 37, right? Mm -hmm. And so we're not talking mm -hmm. about like Mario for six-year-olds anymore. Although, like when you have some these messages, these damsel in distress messages popping up consistently in video games for young boys, they end up developing, you know, the argument is they end up developing these associations that women are damsels in distress, so on and so forth, right? But really what we have to think about is our generation, let's see, I'm 35, you're about that same age Thursday, so um, I'm not going to say how old you are because that's rude, um, but she's in the ballpark. Um, our, our generation and before that, like gaming is a very major part of the, the communication. It's a major part of our culture, right? And so if there are issues that exists within those things is like we're talking about. Not only is it a part of our culture, it's a huge economic driving force when it comes to things. This is where in tech people largely, I mean, not largely, but it makes up a significant portion of the people develop or of the developers that we're talking about. And so think about this. You're, you've got this really 
um, questionable or not questionable game that portrays women in a certain way being developed by who? Women. Are you going to want to develop that type of game? And if you're not developing that type of game, where are you going to get a job? Because there certain seems to be there seems to be certain trends that sell well, so on and so forth. So we're not just talking about games. We're talking about the entire industry, which means we're also talking about our economy and the educational constructs that we have, so on and so forth. So it's a really important issue, even though it seems to be like a small one, you know, in comparison. Absolutely. And the the same tropes that Anita Sarkeesian has identified in video games are also very visible in other forms of media. It's it's very prevalent that these thought patterns that she's discussing. And I think that whether or not you agree with academic criticism, it's very reasonable that we should be very aware of what media we're consuming. It doesn't seem, and I mean, this may just be me being incredibly over-educated and nerdy, but I think that it's worth having those discussions whether or not you agree with them. It's, it shouldn't be so dangerous just to say, let's take a look at what we're consuming from a media perspective. Yeah. And keep in mind, we're not talking about just slut calling here, right? This is actually threats on people. This is threats of, you know, them being killed, threats of them being raped, threats of like all sorts of really terrible things that will pop up. And it's, it's polar, right? It's not polar. That's not the word I'm looking for. It's very biased towards women. Like you don't see these same types of things happening, you know, for or to men about the games they create. So it's like we need a we need a counterculture or not a counterculture. We need enough men critiquing games, right, and standing up for like this particular way of addressing the media, and much more so. And I think, hold on. Correct me if I'm wrong in the trend. There was at least one or a few prominent male like thought leaders on video games that spoke up, and then Gamergate come even more with things. Is that correct? Yeah, there was, and I don't remember his name, but there was a football player who uh, agreed basically with everything Anita Sarkeesian said, very much so wrote in support of her, and got almost no threats at all. Was essentially ignored by Gamergate. And he, he went out of his way. He he went out of his way to aggravate them, was calling them names, was trying to engage on social media and crickets. So, again, it goes back to what we mentioned earlier. That we, there's sort of three different conversational points here that we're talking about. What can we do to influence the industry as just as industry thinkers and things like that? So that's one. What can you do to influence this particular pattern as a company founder or within the companies. That's another thing. But then there's the consumer element, right? Um, if you don't buy the games that are supported by certain people or that have these certain tropes and you buy the other games, there's just diversity of other games that we're talking about, then um, because people have to make a living, they're going to follow <laughs> where the money is. And so there are three different like levers of action that you can take here and just be mindful of it. And I think that's, whether we're talking about the academic deconstruction of video games, which is, I think, a, a worthwhile thing to do, given that it is such a prominent force in our culture right now, or just being aware that there are these major issues that are that are going on within the tech industry for women. I think both are fruitful things to at least bring out and say, hey, um, we've come a long way and we still have a ways yet to go, you know? Absolutely. Okay, so let's talk about some of your your startup and side ventures um, because I was really interested because in all of our conversations I didn't know about Pie Ladies and I also didn't know about your your um, nonprofit. So what are you doing in each of those? 
So PyLadies is a Python user group, which is just women. Um, so Python is a programming language that's uh, pretty popular. It's kind of on par with Ruby or PHP in, in terms of the things that it does. And we do a lot of different events around learning to code, being supportive of one another, um, being involved in the tech community in Portland as a whole, that sort of thing. Um, and I mean, I, I feel strongly that it's very valuable at this point to learn at least a little bit of how to code. And a lot of the learning options currently available just don't appeal to me. Um, I am busy enough that going to a coding boot camp just isn't going to work out for me. And a lot of the broader user groups are, there's some variability in how welcoming they are to people who are new, to people who are not sort of the people who are already members and both people who are both different and new. So PyLadies is, is a really awesome uh, alternative in my, in my mind. And it's uh, international at this point. Um, we're going to have a very large contingent at the largest Python conference uh, in the world, which is happening in April, all of those things. So it's, it's a fun organization. Okay. And PDX Shelter? So PDX Shelter um, is a project that we're working on using technology to address some of the, the, the homeless problems uh, that we see here in Portland, especially. Um, and it started out as a Startup Weekend project. Uh, Startup Weekend is basically this event where a bunch of people get together who may or may not know each other and over the course of 54 hours build a startup. Uh, in early November, we were one of those teams. There were seven of us. Uh, only two of us knew each other previously. Um, but at the beginning of the weekend, Matthew Fountain, who is our, our fearless leader, got up and talked about his experiences volunteering at some of the, the homeless shelters here in, here in Portland. And one of the, the things that he had noticed was that a lot of the homeless population have access to cell phones and some of them even have access to smartphones. There's several uh, government programs that make phones available because in this day and age, without that sort of access to information, it's impossible to get services. It's still very hard with those, those tools, but without it, there's, there's no chance. Um, and a lot of the information that is necessary, the best way to get at it is to call 211 from a phone. And they'll read you off information, the service, which is funded by the phone companies. So what we started out to do was to make some of that information available uh, as a smartphone app. Uh, because they, there are all of these people that have access to phones. They may not have a data plan, but most of the, these people will know exactly where free Wi-Fi is all over the city. You will see them there downloading whatever they need and then going about their day. And because access to information does make such a difference, making that information even more accessible seems like the logical next step to us. So right now we're working on um, a sustainable version of the app that we built for Startup Weekend, which was basically a demo. And yeah, that's, that's kind of the, the PDX Shelter project. Um, more context here. We in the States don't often think about the fact that across the world in Africa, Asia, um, Asia Minor, Russia, um, 
there are entire economies that are ran off of just phones, either text messaging, so texting money back and forth, buying things, so on and so forth. And so um, when it comes to technological innovation, we've kind of jumped right into broadband and computers and mobile devices. But there's still this huge realm that is probably closer to some of the homeless population that like there's a lot of economic um, life support and logistical stuff that you can run off of a phone that actually meets people where they are and um, creates the efficiencies that we're talking about. So that's one of the reasons I love um, I love this particular thing we talked about over lunch. I was like, oh yeah, that's what we talked about. Um, so as far as roadmap goes, when like what what's the state of development of the startup? Well, so <laughs> what's interesting is uh, three fourths of our team basically was just finishing up coding boot camps. So we really only had two very experienced programmers on our team. Um, but so January was basically all about making sure that they all had day jobs. So we're hoping in March we'll have something interesting to show off because now we're getting back to work now that everybody is gainfully employed. We're getting back to work now that people are back to work. Right. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, um, yeah, you do have to figure those things out. So um, do you have any potential like funders or anything like that online for um, helping make it less than a side hustle? Or excuse me, more than a side hustle? Actually, we've been very pleasantly surprised by how responsive the Portland startup scene has been. Um, I'm one of those people who does look to look gift horses in the mouth constantly. Um, one of the things that I think is going on is that there's not easy ways for the startups around here to get, uh, to give back to the community, to get involved with volunteer efforts, that sort of thing. Uh, so they look for people who are already doing that and that they can connect with and just say, Oh, here, we'll give money rather than anything else. Or we'll give, there's several, um, Startups here, they've basically given us free plans on whatever they're building, that sort of thing. So it's really nice that they're all so willing to help. I, I'd kind of like to find ways to encourage them to get a little bit more involved themselves. But for now, we'll take the donations. Yes, always take the donations um, and then think of other ways. So I'm curious, what's the, the gender breakup of, of the startup or the breakdown? So there's... Uh, actually four guys and three women. Um, so one of the other women is actually a pie lady. Um, I had told her, well, I'm going to start up weekend. You're, you're an excellent programmer. You have to come to some of these events. You're coming with me to this one. Uh, and we both wound up on the same team, which was great. Um, and then there's another woman who she's a little bit more on the marketing side as well. So she's been very involved. Um, and then, yeah, and then there's four guys and it's been very interesting to work on. What ways interesting is, is a, is a entry word for me. Okay. So one of the, the things that just, I keep noticing is that because we have such a team that is so relatively new to programming, relatively new to tech overall, uh, we've seen a a lot of different approaches than what normally might have happened. So one of our more experienced programmers right off the bat was like, we should have an agile workflow. We're going to go old school with our bug trackers. There. And everybody else is like, we don't know what any of those words mean. So we're just going to start working in <laughs> and we're just going to figure out what we need along the way. And honestly, since we were starting 
a project that needed to be done 54 hours later. That was more than reasonable. Um, we wound up building actually very little from scratch for our demo. Um, there's a tool called Firebase, which you can build an incredible amount of uh, an app basically just right on top of it. It does most of the work and then you have to make it look pretty, which was fantastic for our purposes. Um, so we took a lot of what you might consider shortcuts, but also might just consider to be efficiency, which I don't think is what would have happened with a more experienced set of developers. Yeah. Um, you look at agile programming and things like that. You definitely started up with a scaffold and we know that at a certain point you're going to have to rebuild your architecture, but that's another matter. Like get to that point and then rebuild it as opposed to making it super, um, super complicated from the very beginning. Not that I know anything about that. Uh, <laughs> so, okay. That, that's where that is. So let's flip in and talk a little bit more about Thursday and we'll wrap up the show. Um, so, You've got a lot of things going on. You've got Urgency Inc. You've got PDX Shelter. You've got uh, PyLadies. You've got all of the writing about kitchen sinks to, um, you know, what is it, cryptocurrencies. You've got all this going on. So, um, woman with many irons in the fire. What right now is your most unanticipated, um, like the biggest, most unanticipated challenge that you're currently facing? One of the, the things that I have not been expecting but keeps popping up is like people asking almost for mentorship. Like I had someone email me last week saying, I want to be your intern. And I'm like, that's fantastic, but I don't know what I'm gonna do with an intern. <laughs> so I, I do believe that it's very important that um, if you do a certain type of business or whatever for long enough that you have to give back, you have to mentor people and have to help. But I've been pleasantly surprised by how many people are asking and that's not the easiest thing to fit in with everything else. Yeah. An abundance of riches you have. Yes. <laughs> well, that, that's a very good problem to have. Um, all right. So we've talked about a lot of things on the show, women in tech, um, you know, some of the industry, some of the content or excuse me, some of the trends going on in tech in general startups. Like if there were one thing that people that you would want people to take away from the show, what would that be? That, all of these problems may seem huge and may seem very difficult to do anything about, but if you take one step, if you do one thing, you're on the way to solving them. You have to take even the smallest of actions to get started. It can be tiny. It can be something that feels insignificant in the grand scheme of things. Thinking about doing something small, something that feels insignificant, do that tiny thing. That tiny thing is still progress. It's still something worth doing. Great. So you can become aware of the issues so that you're at least a, an enlightened person about them. You can get active about those issues. You can build the solutions. You can be a part of the building of the solutions. You can support the solutions being built. But... You know, the, the fundamental problems, the, 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 I think the frustrating thing, and I'm not the first person to say this, but like the, the, the great sadness is with all these different problems that we're talking about, it's not that there's no solution. It's just that we're not focusing our action on building those solutions. So I um, just wanted to back up what you were saying there. So Thursday, thanks so much for joining us today, for doing the great work that you do. Um, it's, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Okay, Creative Giants. So you heard it from Thursday, right? A lot of issues going on. There are a lot of things that you can do, taking action, getting involved, being aware, building a solution. So I'm just curious, 
What one issue really is important to you that you would like to take action on today? And what is it? Go do that. And until next time, stay tall. Thanks for listening to the Creative Giant Show. To find more tools and inspiration for creative giants, head on over to ProductiveFlourishing.com. Stand tall, creative giant.